This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Good morning. Good morning. So are there folks here for the first time this morning? Great, welcome. Welcome. Old friends from Tassajara as well. <laughs> um, well, thank you for coming this morning. Um, I think I, I would like to talk about or discuss today um, this idea in Buddhism, or particularly, but I think in most religions, of giving or generosity. I was, on the, I was a little, little wary as Mary did such a good job discussing what <laughs> giving was. I was like, stop, I'm about to give a talk. <laughs> um, but I think we'll just sort of continue to sort of um, talk about and play with and um, delve into, because this is actually a huge part of uh, Buddhism and Zen in particular. Um, and I'm, I, I swear that I'm not just giving this talk because of this member event at the end of the month, um, but we've been meaning to kind of um, have this conversation, I think both Mako and I and, and the board, um, as a sangha, you know. Um, so Buddhism has lots of classifications. I think they were... You know, lots of oral traditions had numeric lists to help people remember um, certain aspects of the teaching. Um, and there's tons in Buddhism. Um, you know, the Four Noble Truths we're, we're aware of. Um, the Four Immeasurables, or Brahma-Viharas. These are mind states of um, heavenly abodes. Yeah, so loving-kindness, compassion... Um, sympathetic or shared joy, joy for the success of another or the happiness of another, um, and equanimity. So those are the four Brahma-viharas or sort of states that are heavenly in some way. Um, and a real popular one in Zen is the six paramitas. And I think it's, in my experience, more talked about than the Four Noble Truths or something you know, so basic to, to Buddhism. Um, and so the six paramitas were, and uh, I think they all, they're all sort of concepts contained in early Buddhism, but this, this formulation of this list and I think this sort of priority uh, of these teachings came about uh, more in the Mahayana of the Reformation of era of Buddhism. Um, <clears throat> and particularly these six are spelled out in the Lotus Sutra, which is sort of the most famous sutra of the Mahayana. Um, and the six are, number one is generosity, um, giving. Number two is morality or ethical conduct. Three is tolerance or patience. Four is energy. This is a big one in Zen. Virya. It's like, I don't know if anybody's seen the videos of uh, monks cleaning the floors at a Heiji. 
Like they have this like cloth and they're bent over like holding the cloth on the ground and running, like pushing it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like you can feel the, the kind of the energy coming off of their practice. So that, that's virya or energy. Um, the fifth one is meditation. Um, and this is the translation for uh, uh, jhana, dhyana, um, in Sanskrit. And that became chan, it was translated, transliterated into Chinese as chan, and then transliterated into Japanese as Zen. So Zen is the, the meditation school. This is kind of the focus of um, our style. Uh, so that's the fifth one. And then the sixth is wisdom or prajna. Uh, and this is this kind of... Um, so we chanted this morning the hymn to the prajna paramita. Um, this is this kind of soup of interconnection and interplay that we um, our existence kind of takes place in, um, comes out of. So I think a lot of Zen teachers, um, when we start to talk about giving or generosity, note that it is the first of the six paramitas. And I've heard you know really great talks about how the six are not a kind of linear, you know, um, practice kind of direction, um, and that actually all of the other five are um, always contained in each one. So this is like. Um, like Indra's net, this idea of interconnection as a kind of net of jewels at every node and each jewel reflecting every other jewel in the net. So um, I think the paramitas can kind of be seen that way and talked about that way. Um, but it is interesting that um, it's, the, it's the first one. So what is, what is it about giving that um, kind of is the entrance to the spiritual path, if we kind of read it that way. Uh, anybody want to hazard a guess? Yeah. Uh, generosity is kind of to push that to like other concerning, to being worried about something beyond simply yourself. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. It's sort of an act of renunciation at each time that you give something away that you want, but you decide to yeah. give it away as an act of renunciation. Renunciation, I like that. A willingness to let go. Yeah, that's a huge part of practice. And we learn that in giving, I would agree. Yeah. If you give up your notion of self and the ego, then it's not yours to begin with. Say that again? If you give up your notion of self and ego, what you're giving is not yours anyway to begin with. Right. Right. There's sort of layers of giving and generosity that open up in practice. Um, and ultimately, if we, if we do fully understand that we are just sort of some aspect of prajna, some aspect of this soup of interconnection and interplay, then it's not really us that's giving, and we're not really giving to someone outside of ourselves. Yeah, that's a, a sort of deep understanding of giving. Yeah. If we're all cells in one greater organism, then we're giving, we're dispersing that as it comes through the body, and it needs to spread. It needs to spread. 
if it clusters in one area, that's detrimental to the whole body. Yeah. So there's some aspect of movement that you're implying, of flow or um, unobstructedness or something. Yeah. You're a conduit for that. Yeah. Um, it also seems like it could be it could be a way to work um, with the ego in the sense of um, when I give something to somewhere in there, do I immediately think I'm, I'm getting some kind of credit? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So this is this is the practice of generosity. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, the paramita means the perfection of generosity, but you know, like most things in Mahayana, you know, vowing to save all beings and realize every delusion, um, it's not meant to be obtained. So paramita means kind of gone beyond. But in the process of learning these paramitas, we're practicing these paramitas, um, and I do. I want to talk a little bit about the practice. Um, what it means to practice with any one of these six paramitas. Um, there's a Tibetan teacher, I don't know if I wrote down his name. No, I didn't. Um, who, there's, there's a number of books on the six paramitas, so the two I have with me are, are Robert Aiken, um, Roshi, his book on the paramitas, um, is it Wright, Stephen Wright, or James Wright? There's a, there's a kind of... Dale Wright. Dale Wright? There's a more recent, yeah, kind of a little bit more academic book on the six paramitas. Um, Norman Fisher, who was here, um, you know, talking about his new book, that, well, that book is on the six paramitas. And there's a Tibetan teacher who has a book on the six paramitas um, that... Uh, that I, I read when I lived at Tassajara, and I, um, there was a, in the chapter on generosity, he offered a practice, which was like, just for an hour, or a day, or a week, try to act on, or um, act out into the world, any, any generous thought that comes to your mind. Um, it's a tall order. <laughs> or, or maybe there are none, you know, yeah. <laughs> um, maybe what we recognize is that we don't have a generous thought. Um, unlikely. I think, I think most often um, there is even just the sort of beginning of a generous thought, but then part of the practice, and we, when we're kind of looking for them, we're looking to kind of cultivate them, is in that looking, I notice the ways that I immediately step in and um, justify why I shouldn't do that, or why it might be embarrassing to me, or why the other person might not like this gift. Or um, So the ego kind of very quickly, as soon as the generous thought arises, there's all of this You know, internal wrestling with it. So, so the idea that a, a thought could arise and we would just do it is pretty fascinating to me. And a good practice. Like, you know, can we um, uh, allow these thoughts to bubble up? And I think if we don't have many, and I doubt we don't, I doubt we have none, but if we don't have many thoughts, 
then that's part of that practice is like recognizing the moments we do. Um, <clears throat> sharing knowledge is one of those. Sharing knowledge? How so? If you have accumulated this knowledge, wisdom, etc., and you share it with others, it can be beneficial to them. That's a gift. That Absolutely. Is beneficial in their life that they express. Absolutely, yeah. So there are many forms of gifts. It's not monetary necessarily or material goods. Um, tradition, traditionally in Buddhism, the four were material support. So uh, actually it is important that we have food and clothing to protect our bodies and allow us to live. Um, the second is protection. So safety, kind of, you know, this is like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Like, um Safety is the next to, to kind of ha- enable us to do anything else in our life. There has to be some basic safety. Um, <clears throat> and then the third is traditionally the teachings or the Dharma. So giving of the teachings. Um, and that sort of could be sharing our experience of practice. And then the fourth, and the one that always kind of really got me, was is the, the fourth gift is non-fear. That that would be classified as one of the four major gifts in Buddhism. Um, wow. So, fearlessness or courage is an act of giving in terms of the, the sort of model of Buddhism. So, one of the chants that we often do here and that most Zen temples do, you know maybe every day, but certainly every week, is the, the um, Prajna Paramita Heart Sutra. And there's like, um, I think I've talked about this in other talks, but um, there's a kind of numbing aspect to the Prajna Paramita, like, know this, know that, no, 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 and, and you start to kind of, um, but then there's this sort of shining moment in the middle that kind of like wakes me back up or has at times um, and the line is, um, so there's, it's sort of the end of the nose, neither old age and death, nor extinction of old age and death, no suffering, no cause, no cessation, no path. So those are the four noble truths. Like, no, those aren't kind of eternally abiding things. This is all provisional. Um, no knowledge and no attainment. And then period, with nothing to attain, a bodhisattva relies on prajna paramita. We rely on this flow of within the soup, you know, that we're actually um, part of something bigger than our own life. So Bodhisattva relies on Prajnaparamita, and thus the mind is without hindrance. So again, this idea of blockage. Um, Without hindrance, there is no fear. So non-fear, like giving the gift of non-fear or fearlessness, has something to do with uh, freeing, free-flowingness or unobstructedness. And you know, Suzuki Roshi gave a, a, a kind of delightful talk about work and labor and money that I didn't see until I'd been in practice for a long time. It was not published in one of his books. Um, and it's there was a sort of um, unedited transcript that um, is on David Chadwick's site, cube.com. 
Um, but this unobstructedness sort of appears in Suzuki Roshi's understanding of money and giving. Um, <clears throat> Well, we'll get to that, but it's sort of embedded in this idea of um, purifying, that something about movement and unobstructiveness is purifying to our life. Suzuki Roshi says, and to exchange, meaning, um, you know, trade or giving or... um, To exchange means to purify, you know. When you exchange things, it means to purify things. Yeah, well, he, he kind of comes back to it a couple times, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through some of his other examples. If you think um, about a plant that takes in the CO2 and then purifies it and releases the oxygen and, and then keeps some of the carbon, etc. I mean, that each of us sort of transforms things and adds our own value and absorbs some of the toxins to purify. I like that, yeah. And there's this aspect of transformation, you know, transforming CO2 into oxygen. Even if the plant didn't kind of maintain some of the CO2, that transformation is somehow a, a purification process. Um, yeah, like very like Suzuki Roshi, he doesn't necessarily explain it. He just keeps bringing it up in the talk. <laughs> um, he... Uh, he said, but when you pay with respect, meaning you value money, basically, you know f- for the things which was given to us for the labor, so for somebody's work and we're paying for... Um, so let me stand back and actually explain a little bit about what he's talking about. He says... Um, His understanding of sort of Western economics is that what we exchange money for most often or most clearly is kind of labor, like what went into this thing. Um, And he makes a very good point that um, what we often ignore is the inherent value of the thing before we even got it. So, and he says, he says in your language, what is given to you by God or in maybe in Buddhist language, what is given to you by Buddha, uh, we don't kind of we don't have that sense of value. Um, we only see the value of the labor or the, the transformation of the thing, um, <clears throat> which is an interesting commentary on um, you know, capitalism and um, environmental destruction, certainly. <clears throat> So he says, but only when you pay with respect, you know, for things which was given to us for the labor. So this is, again, unedited. This is his English. Um, Given to us for the labor which was worked by somebody else. With respect, then, you know, in this sense. If you pay some money when you get something with this, only when you do it with this kind of understanding, this kind of value for what... um, what money represents or something. Um, Only when you do this kind of thing, uh, do it with this kind of understanding, you can purify your life, your activity of changing things. Without this, you know, idea, if you, even though you pay for things you get, 
you owe a lot, you owe a lot, and he laughs. So, you know, true exchange is understanding the kind of the value being exchanged, I think is his point. And maybe that's the process of purification as well. Reminding us of the kind of inherent value of things. So this is the part that I'll get back to in terms of this flow. He says, why we have money is to exchange things. We should not, you know, stop the current of the money. So in this sense, you know, we say everything changes. Later in that paragraph, he says, if money is going smoothly all over our, in our society, our society is healthy. So this was the fascinating point that I didn't expect to hear from Suzuki Roshi that surprised me. I thought he would say, um, the value part I understand, you know, kind of like being very careful with things and appreciating things. Um, That's a kind of, you know, Zen teaching. But Suzuki Roshi is saying, allow things to move freely, including money, you know, maybe especially money. I was surprised in economics to learn that we, if, if I have a dollar and I can't own to it all month, it's just a dollar. But I give it to somebody else and they give it to somebody else and they give it to somebody else. It appears to be a thousand dollars. One dollar appears to be a thousand. Mm-hmm. The economy, if it's moving. Mm-hmm. And so when we save, it then actually isolates that and, and it's not flowing. And if you play any simulation games, it really shows you the power <laughs> of that. Back and forth, so. Yeah. I try to take my lessons for everywhere. Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think um, we all kind of intuitively understand this that, like, a culture of hoarding is not actually a healthy culture. Um, a culture of, um, yeah, taking things out of the flow. And, like you're saying, then it just stays as $1. It's just $1 in my bank account. But to allow money to come in and go out, um, this is this process of purification. This is kind of nourishment for everybody. And it's not just money, you know. I think this is sort of, if we want to talk about giving, you know, there's uh, the ways that we give, um, you know, come back to us as, um, as gifts. But the things we withhold, uh, we don't get that same nourishment from. So part of, I think part of um, giving and the practice of giving um, that maybe surprised me a little bit in, in early in practice is like it is this um, unification action. Giving the person you're giving to and the gift itself are one thing, one system. Um, in our meal chant in Zen, we talk about the three wheels of giver, receiver, and gift. Um, there's a kind of blurring of which is which in, in the kind of um, the true activity of giving. Um, so part of giving is receiving. If we, if we fully see giving... Um, and how it is one inseparable system, part of what allows the flow is receiving, too. And I think, you know, maybe I'm not alone in discovering that 
I would prefer to give something than receive. And receiving feels somehow more uncomfortable. Um, and uh, Robert Aiken talks about the uh, Japanese word arigato, or thank you, actually translates to something like, I have difficulty. <laughs> I have difficulty. Um, it's sort of acknowledging the the kind of uncomfortableness of receiving. You know, oh, isn't that interesting? You know, so if we really believe in the sort of health of a kind of system of flowing energy, we have to see where the blockages are. And sometimes the blockage is like, I resist my my own urge to give. You know, or I rationalize why I shouldn't. But also another area of blockage is like. I can't quite receive, you know, I defer, and um, I believe I'm not worthy, you know, these are all kind of aspects of blockage in this kind of natural flow of giving and receiving. An important part of that too is to say thank you when you receive it, if you instead excuse it off, then you're actually rejecting the gift that was given to you, so it's important to say thank you back. I, yes. Away, right? Yes. Uh, this is a good practice, and and one that I have ex- like kind of explicitly tried to take up at times um, is that if somebody gives you something, can you take it? First of all, in, in Japanese culture, it's polite to receive with two hands. It means your full attention is on the thing. So to receive the gift, and uh, yeah, like practice reminding myself that the first words are thank you it's hard <laughs> the first words are more often oh you shouldn't have <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't I can't accept this you know you're too nice or it something. was nothing it, yeah I didn't you know you excused it off and, and you're actually rejecting their gift and that was a big important lesson for me yeah me too so yeah there's a practice of just saying thank you when somebody and maybe stopping yourself from saying anything further. Um, <clears throat> yeah. So the other part that surprised me about the Suzuki Roshi talk, Suzuki Roshi, like, for somebody so kind of mature in his own practice and able and clear in the way he could express it, um, had this sort of delightful, childlike kind of. Um, joy at times. I've, I've heard a story that when his students kind of discovered that Tassajara, which is now part of San Francisco Zen Center, was available, like this land deep in the mountains was available to possibly um, build a uh, Zen monastery. They drove him there, one of his students, I don't remember who, and they, um, they got out, and we just were at Tassajara, a few of us from the Sangha, a few weeks ago, um, and they got out of the car, I think, at Line Point, so on the road into Tassajara. And um, Suzuki Roshi had wanted to visit China as a, as a child. Like he had had um, some idea of Chinese masters and seen sort of famous brush paintings of China. And he had this sort of very romantic view of China. And the mountains around Tassajara are um, pretty sparse and rugged, you know, lots of rocks and kind of low scrubby bushes and so they were on their way into Tassajara and they stopped and got out of the car to look around and Suzuki Roshi just started jumping up and down saying it's just like China it's just like China (laughs) (laughs) so he was so excited Um, 
And so at the end of this, the end of this talk, um, I'll just read you the, the last paragraph, and hopefully it makes sense through his broken English. But he says, before we study Buddhism, we should know that we are doing what we are doing and how we survive here. So he, he, when he says survive, he means sort of the exchange, like money is actually part of our life. And so, again, this was a part that surprised me, but he's saying we have to understand how to work with money um, because it is part of our survival here. Um, he said we should know what we are doing and how we survive here. So we think that this is a part of practice. But we do not, you know, we do not reject people just because of money. Um, I think he means like, if you can't donate to the temple, it's it, we're not, like nobody's going to send you away. Um, um, but he says we are ready to help with each other, meaning people that can give give, and people that can't give money give in other ways. We are ready to help each other. But he, he says, but each of us should purify our zendo with money. <laughs> and he laughs. First of all, he laughs and the whole crowd laughs. That is why I say, you should pay. <laughs> Give me some money. <laughs> he laughed and the whole crowd laughed. And he says, if you, if you give me some money, someone will take good care of it, you know. So this is the purification. This is the respect for the thing that is given, you know, as a, certainly as a somebody, you know, in charge of helping run a temple. It's so important to receive the gift. Um, yeah. yeah. On our trip to Pasadena, we talked a little bit about how it was purchased, and I think maybe that would be an interesting. I don't. I don't know that I actually know that story. Uh, said that it was initial purchase was a concert for the Grateful Dead and Joan Baez. Oh, you're right. Donated yeah. money to yeah. purchase uh, Yeah. So, so when Suzuki Roshi arrived in America, it was this sort of like kind of wild moment where Americans were just, you know, the, the Beats and then the sort of hippie generation, like Americans were just starting to open to <coughs> Ideas from the from the east and from uh, kind of Asian cultures in it, um, and there was also I think in America a real feeling that anything was possible or that change you know profound change was possible. I think we're nearing that moment again, but um, um, so yeah. So San Francisco Zen Center kind of came up very quickly in this kind of. A group of people surrounding Suzuki Roshi, lots of kind of energy and, and people wanting to really give their time and, and life to this organization and this practice and him as a teacher and um, and so they, they were sort of very quickly in succession you know, got this huge building in San Francisco, the city center um, I think later on they were, they, they were offered uh, Green Gulch Farm, which is this beautiful farming valley in Marin County for um, very little money, but in, they heard that Tassajara was for sale, and San Francisco Zen Center decided to have a concert, like a fundraising concert in Golden Gate Park, um, including, it was headlined by the Grateful Dead. Um, so there were lots of people very excited about the potential of Zen in America, and um, yeah. Mm -mm. What's that? It's also a bakery for a 
Yeah, San Francisco Zen Center had a grocery store, a, a stitchery, Elias Stitchery, a restaurant, a vegetarian restaurant. So there was all these kind of different sources of, of income that they were trying to develop and, and kind of shares and practice in a wider way, which was really um, you know, quite cool. So, so Suzuki Roshi will take care of this sort of dualistic idea of money. <laughs> Give me money. <laughs> um, <laughs> But Dogen has a, um, a fascicle called the Bodhisattva's Four Methods of Guidance, Bodhisattva Shisho Ho. Um, and in it he says, the Bodhisattva's Four Methods of Guidance. So Bodhisattva, I think most people maybe know, is, is a kind of idea of practice that came out of the Mahayana. And this is also what sort of came, you know, allowed for the, the, the practice of these six paramitas. The idea that we are all in this together. So the, you know, prior to that, Buddhism, the idea of enlightenment was to sort of get off the wheel, to get out, to escape. Um, and the Bodhisattva revolution, the Mahayana revolution, was actually we, we no one of us escapes unless we all escape. Um, that we are in this together. So that's fundamentally what the Bodhisattva vow is. So he says, the bodhisattva's four methods of guidance are giving, kind speech, beneficial action, and identity action. Uh, Those last two I don't necessarily understand very well and and would have to, yeah. So I'm not going to introduce those in the talk, but here's another (laughs) list. Um, Here's another list that begins with giving, generosity. This is foundational, you know, like these are two separate kind of Zen lists where Giving is the first thing. You know, how, how deeply integral to our shared practice it is. So he's, Dogen says, giving means non-greed. Non-greed means not to covet. Not to covet means not to curry favor. That's an interesting one. Uh, even if you govern the four continents, you should always convey the correct teaching with non-greed. It is to give away unneeded belongings to someone you don't know. To offer, this is my favorite, to offer flowers blooming on a distant mountain to the Tathagata. Or again, to offer treasures you had in your former life to sentient beings. Whether it is of teaching or of material, each gift has its value and is worth giving. Even if the gift is not your own, there is no reason to keep from giving. The question is not whether the gift is valuable, but whether there is merit. I'm not totally sure what he means by merit there, but um, this offering flowers blooming on a distant mountain to the Tathagata. So it doesn't even, so giving doesn't even necessarily involve having the thing. It's this spirit, it's this kind of wish, um, it's this intention. <clears throat> so he says further on in the, in the fascicle, um, to launch a boat or build a bridge is an act of giving. 
If you study giving closely, you see that to accept a body and to give up the body are both giving. Making a living and producing things can be nothing other than giving. To leave flowers to the wind, to leave birds to the seasons, are are also acts of giving. So it's a spirit, it's a kind of wish, it's an intention. And then we don't have to worry about whether whether we'll be bereft without the thing, you know, whether we'll feel this sense of loss or lack. <laughs> I can very freely offer the, the flowers of some mountain far away and not feel like I'm losing something, you know. But that's actually a true um, understanding of giving, giving even if I have the thing, you know. If we, if we really feel our interconnection with all beings, Giving isn't about me and you. It's about this kind of um, enabling the flow of prajna. Photography is a lot like that in terms of you can give those flowers to someone who couldn't see them otherwise. Right. And the internet is a way to share that as well as photographs, videos, etc. Yeah. <coughs> maybe the last... <clears throat> aspect that I'll mention is if further he says <clears throat> Buddha said if you are to practice giving to yourself how much more so to your parents, wife and children um, so Buddha kind of makes this um, or at least in Dogen's quoting of Buddha mm-hmm. there's this sort of distinction of like yes give to yourself but also like even more importantly to others and I really love that Dogen follows that up with reaffirming the first part of the statement. He says, therefore, you should know that to give to yourself is a part of giving. And often it's what enables us to give to others. So how is this cycle or flow playing out even in this body and mind with no thought of myself and others? How are we being generous with ourselves? How are we not being generous with ourselves? Am I willing to see that? Did anybody see the full moon last night? Yes. It's pretty striking. I think it was the harvest moon is what I hear. And because it was full, I actually looked it up on, I went ahead and looked it up on Google. Um, it was full at 11.30 p.m. It meant that it kind of rose as people were still awake and was at the sort of apex of the sky at a time when people might still be awake. So it was very striking. Um, and a, a full moon, or the moon in general, but certainly a full moon is a big symbol in Zen. Do people know what it's kind of a symbol of? It's a reflection. It's a reflection, yeah. Yeah. Enlightenment. Enlightenment, yeah. Yeah. So that's the big one. Um, 
and maybe those two things aren't necessarily unrelated. So I think one of the aspects of the moon is that's sort of prized in Zen and, and actually Chinese kind of culture and mythology you know, that informs Zen um, is uh, this radiant and reflective quality. Um, and that Zen makes this connection to uh, our own mind the potential of our own minds to, to kind of um, be this radiant and reflective mirror. Um, so mirror is another image that comes up a lot in Zen. But um, I remember I took a, an astronomy class as a freshman in college, and the professor did this really cool demonstration where he had you know balls of different sizes. One was like a mini basketball and like a tennis ball and a golf ball or something, and set up a flashlight or a kind of beam of light, and then put things in relationship to each other to show how shadows are cast. And I never forgot that. Like every time I see the moon in different phases, I see the shadow of the earth on the moon. Um, and when the moon is full, I, I understand that like directly behind me, you know, 180 degrees away from that is where the sun is in that moment. But it's interesting that the sun is not a big symbol in Zen, you know, like just this solitary thing giving off energy and light. It's the thing that reflects. It's the thing in relationship to something else. The moon only has light because of the sun. Um, so I think, you know, giving to ourself one way to look at it is this, so another aspect of the full moon, you know, being reflective and luminous as a sort of symbol of enlightenment is its wholeness. It's not missing anything. A round circle, you know, an enzo is a symbol of Zen. You know, this is, everything's included. There's nothing cut off or let out, left, left out. And I think that is um, one way to practice with generosity to the self. How do we um, notice, uh, appreciate every aspect of who we are as an effort to kind of bring it all into one circle? Um, to see it as a genuine, round reflection of uh, everything else. So I think a lot of times in meditation, uh, but also not necessarily just meditation, what we notice are our own insecurities or our own um, repetitive thoughts or our own discomfort with ourself. Um, So I think the process of practice and the process of zazen can be, you know, allowing these things to arise into our um, our field and allowing each one, like, yes, this is okay to exist here. I don't need to cut it off and throw it away because then the then the circle's not whole anymore. 
whatever this thing that I don't like about myself is might have some part to play in my own offering to the universe. So giving is this door. We open this door into spiritual practice, into spiritual life. And as one of the teachers pointed out uh, in something I read last night, um, when we start looking for generosity or acts of kindness or things we appreciate, they become more plentiful. If we start looking for things we don't have or we lack or we don't like about ourselves or those things proliferate as well. So it's kind of a, um, to the degree that we have a choice, you know, sometimes our consciousness is just sort of attached to something, drawn to something, but we can kind of bring it back to, oh yeah, I was trying to find something that I could offer or something I appreciated about something that was given to me. But yeah, there's, you know, so this door we open into giving is about relationships, you know, about our kind of, our own perspective with, uh, and kind of in connection to other beings. Um, But it gets deeper and deeper until there are kind of no other beings. Um, There's just this spirit or willingness to let things go as they go. occurs to me in this moment that uh, you know, part of a Dharma talk is this giving and receiving. Um, and on a kind of surface level, you could say uh, that the person speaking is you know, giving their experience and the audience is receiving that somehow. But uh, it's very clear from this seat that, you know, to have people in a room, you know, offering their own attention and their time uh, and receiving that is this kind of other side of giving and receiving. But, so they're always both there um, if we can see them. So thank you for your kind attention today. <laughs> <laughs>